This is Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Always happy to talk to our next guest from Mile High Sports, the host of the Pickaxe and Roll podcast. You can check that out wherever you get podcasts or right on YouTube and watch it as well. You can follow him on Twitter at NBA Blackburn, lead writer for the Denver Nuggets on Mile High Sports, Ryan Blackburn. Ryan, uh, thanks for joining us. I would imagine that even though you watch this team this closely, the performance you got last night, a 97-87 win compared to the first game, that was a, a, a bit of a switcheroo. It's the grit and grind nuggets, Sean. It's the grit and grind nuggets. How can you love it? Like, you can't love it any more than that. Just, I don't think anybody thought that the, any team was going to stop the other in, in this series, just especially the way the game one went. You, you could see the elite shot making that the Suns were putting on, the display that Jamal Murray put on in, in game one. But last night was ugly. It was gritty. It was gruesome. It was disgusting. And, and Denver, they, they dug deep to get that win. And, it's awesome to be able to win in different ways in the NBA. That's what defines a championship team. Even when your best isn't going well, you still find a way. I would dare say, and I don't know about the entire game, but the last 17 minutes of the game last night, let's round out and make it 18 because I didn't think the first 30 minutes were worth squat really for either side. Uh, yeah, some of it was good defense, but a lot of it was bad offense. Just, just bad offense. Neither team could make a shot. But I thought the last 17 minutes when the Nuggets closed the game on a 46-28 run was definitely in the top five among uh, great playoff finishes of 15 minutes or longer in the history of this franchise, even going back to the ABA days. The combination of offense and defense, at least over the last 17 minutes, pretty hard to beat. And the fact was that Michael Malone used, as you've charted out, so many different lineup combinations during that stretch, and not many, if any of them, included Michael Porter Jr. I really thought it was a great coaching job last night by Malone, in addition to being uh, another supreme performance by Jokic. I mentioned this on my podcast earlier today. Uh, the lineup that stands out to me is the one where they sent both Jamal and Michael Porter to the bench, and they played Bruce Brown, KCP, Christian Brown, right. Aaron Gordon, and Nicole Oakley. That was their best lineup last night. I agree. That was their best lineup. Having that group to be able to go to four junkyard dogs surrounding Nicole Jokic, who's been playing great defense this series, by the way, uh, having guys who can switch, who can guard, who can be intense, who can be physical, and then letting Jokic take control on the offensive end, that was Denver's formula. That's what they had to do. Great on Michael Malone for identifying that from the get-go. Uh, it, I believe it's, it's the first that... time this year he's done. Use that particular well, he, he... combination in a key juncture of the game, when the game is well, hanging so... in the balance. I remember that lineup the first time they went to that lineup ever was when they faced Memphis on December 20th, uh, back when they held that team to 90 points in, in Ball Arena. And you could see it. It was Christian Brown's first start. 
his ability to guard. Yeah, well, they had injuries, though. They, they had injuries. Oh, of course. Of yeah. course. And then, yeah, yeah he, he had to get into that. They were forced into that. They may not have tried that if they didn't have to have to sit guys every now and then. But that's the key about the regular season is that Denver, they learned enough during the regular season. They saw enough from their group. So, okay, let's, let's file that away. Let's see if we could break that back out in the playoffs. And for them to break it out in the way that they did to earn uh, a gritty holding the team, uh, holding the opponent to 87 points, that's exactly what that lineup is for. And, and credit to Michael Malone for getting to it. Now that they end up winning a game with uh, both offense, with defense, obviously you didn't get much uh, offensively from Jamal Murray, who was the big story in many cases after game one. The flexibility and the ability to win these sort of games obviously speaks very well to them. And and the idea that uh, on the national scene, you know, Boston was a nine and a half point favorite without Joel Embiid. They end up losing at home. Um, the Nuggets seem to be finally sneaking up on the national media and realize, oh, wait, maybe these guys were the top seed for most of the season for a reason. Maybe they're actually good. Are you surprised that they're surprised? Of course not. Of course I'm not surprised. We, I, I, I was paying attention to this uh, yesterday during the day as it, it felt like it was National Nuggets podcast day around, around the league, around NBA circles, where everybody's reminded, hey, I guess we should probably talk about the Nuggets now, given that, that what, what we thought was going to happen, the Suns ab- abusing them in the pick and roll, just getting to wherever they wanted to go. That didn't happen in game one. Hey, maybe maybe we missed something with Denver. And then, the, like, again, to hold that team to 87 on, on the heels of what was a, a really strong defensive performance in game one, I think it put a lot of people on notice. And, and I think it, it tells a lot of people, look, the regular season, there are certain things that you can take from it. There are certain matchups that you can take from it. But you got to know the team and know whether they are going to rise to the occasion or not. I think everybody locally understood that this was a team that's capable of rising to the occasion and ratcheting up the intensity. But I don't think many people nationally really gave them that credit to do it. And and I think that everybody was shocked when it ultimately happened. I want to ask you about Jokic last night because he did something last night he has not done all year long. He took 30 shots from the field, 30 field goal attempts, a season high, had a couple of threes, had a bunch of floaters, uh, now has become uh, almost adept in the post as Kevin McHale was in his prime. We kind of used to call Kevin McHale the man of a thousand moves uh, in the post. He and Akeem, uh, Akeem due to his soccer background, I think primarily, but McHale and Akeem were the great uh, low post players of their generation. And uh, Jokic has become that for uh, this generation. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking in the third quarter, where I, I thought the Nuggets, at least for a major portion of the quarter, were scuffling. Uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he had 18 of his 39 points in that quarter to keep him in the game and was 7 for 11 from the field. 18 points in that third quarter, another 8 in the fourth to make it 26 in the second half at 39 total. So he had 13 in the first half, 26 in the second. He rose to the occasion. He rose to the level that the Nuggets needed him to reach because that's what MVPs do, and and that's what Nikola Jokic has done. He he hadn't had great success against DeAndre Ayton through the first, I'd say, six quarters of this 
series and, and had previously not had a lot of success against Aiton in, in the, the playoffs a couple of years ago. So that was always going to be a pretty big battleground. And so this two is crowded. I think Aiton's done a pretty good job still against Jokic. I, I thought he was very good in the first half, actually, against him last night. I, I mean, basically played him to a standstill. 13 points for Jokic, 10 for Aiton. Exactly. And, and that's what you're that's where you're looking for at your Phoenix. But when Jokic raises his game another two levels and Aiton's still stuck on the ground floor, yes. that yes. is a really, really large indicator of, of just what an MVP caliber player can do. And Jokic is not going to be announced as the MVP today. Like that's that's not going to happen. He no. made mention of it after was after he was asked several times in the post game last night. And about he couldn't the care MVP less. Race. He could not care less. Zero interest. He's going to go swim today as opposed yeah. to watching the. That's what he said. I'll be in the pool. I'll be I'll soaking be in the pool. In the pool. <laughs> he's getting his pre tan for for Phoenix. Yeah. That's uh, that's exactly what he's got to do. But it's it's so funny. He is just a a complete enigma. Nobody fully understands or appreciates him quite yet. It is going to take a long time for people to like fully realize what his capabilities are and and what his ultimately his career is going to look like but if it's anything like what it started out to be and, and it's if this playoff run finishes the way that we think that it could then he, he's going to be elevated into the pantheon when you look at this particular matchup now going into phoenix and uh, we're talking with ryan blackburn of the my life sports at nba blackburn on twitter and make sure you check him out the pickaxe and roll podcast now things uh, they change. You go to Phoenix. Yes, you're up two to zero. Yes, the Phoenix Suns now have to win four out of five against you. But as Sandy pointed out before you came on earlier in the show, it wouldn't be a shock to see Phoenix not only win one of these next two, but maybe the next two. What do the Nuggets need to do? Uh, they've beat them in an offensive shootout. They've beat them in a defensive struggle. But presumably, the Suns will adjust. They will adapt. They won't have as bad a shooting game. What do you think the Sun? And I want you to flip it for me. If you're Monty Williams and you're the Phoenix Suns, what do you try against the Denver Nuggets after these first two games? Well, first of all, I'm trying to figure out what's happening with Chris Paul, who he went down during game two, wasn't able to return with that groin injury. The way that it looks and the way that it, the way that it looks visually, I can't imagine that he's back for game three and and maybe not even game four. I agree. Uh, it's it's just a that's a very tough blow for them just because they're already so thin. So if if I'm them, I'm probably starting Damian Lee in uh, in Chris Paul's place, and I'm playing Devin Booker at the point guard. And Boy, I'm that, what a run. burden on Booker, though. Of you, course, you're asking him course. to score. You're asking him to defend. Now you're asking him to run the team. Got to play 45 minutes, maybe even 48 in order for them to actually get it done. And that's just a, it's a massive burden to put on to Booker. It's a massive burden to put on to anybody, but the minutes that those guys are already playing, there's very little that they can ask more of from those guys, except make more shots. And I think Kevin Durant will do that. That's probably the biggest adjustment that they'll have to make. Uh, they've got to get some role players going, whoever it is. They'll probably <laughs> whoever it Henry is Shamit back into the rotation. Like oh, uh, I have no idea what they're, what they're planning. Well, on doing, uh, Payne they- didn't Payne play himself out of the rotation last night. I mean, I, I don't know how badly you have to play to get removed from their rotation, but uh, it, it seemed like he fit the bill last night. So uh, Shamit for Payne, but isn't that window dressing? Of course. Really, at this point, of then, it doesn't matter. Like, 
How many how many guys can they actually realistically play? I think they can play five if Chris Paul isn't out there. I think you've got Devin Booker, Kevin Durant, DeAndre Ayton, Torrey Craig, and Josh Okogie. And maybe they start both of those wings, and they just try to be as physical with Denver as possible, and they they just play those five guys as much as they possibly can. But that's a tough uh, route to success because it puts so much pressure offensively on both Durant and Booker. They've already got so much pressure already. So I, I can't imagine that it's, like, it, it's going to be hard for them, but it's also like Denver has, has their own potential for improvement as well. And as long as, like, if, if you're Phoenix, if you can continue holding Jamal Murray before, below average uh, to what to what he's actually doing, like he was horrible last night, but if, if they held him to like 20 points on 20 shots, which is a little bit more realistic, uh, then they'd call that a win. But their offense has to get back on track. 87 points is not going to cut oh, it. 100 not. points may not cut it. Like right. They may have to go for 110. Well, they're averaging 97 through two games, and clearly they have to do a lot better than that. The Ryan, I wanted to look at this because we talked. You talked a bit about Kevin Durant. And he has to be better. But one of my concerns coming in was the fact that since Aaron Gordon got in foul trouble against Carl Anthony Towns, I was kind of nervous that Durant was going to eat him up. But Durant has been cautious, kind of passive in this series when he's kind of dealing with uh, someone who's got a, a a more solid body and is not afraid of being physical. It appears that at this point in his career, uh, Kevin Durant just settles, and it, it appears, quite frankly, we I. Saw that a bit in the Clippers matchup. You didn't see it too much because they didn't have guys who could really play him. But is, is Kevin Durant at this point simply a phenomenally gifted mid-range shooter, or is there more to it? Because in this series, that's what he's looked like to me. We're going to find out. He was shooting an absurd number from mid-range this season in the games that he actually did play. Uh, and so I think he, he's fallen into that trap a little bit and, and falling in love with that shot, knowing that that's his bread and butter. Aaron Gordon and everybody under the sun knows that that's his bread and butter too. So they are going to try to force him to that and make it as tough as possible on him. But the problem with Durant is that the threes that he took last night, they weren't even close most of the time. No, like he, no they're he made, bricks. Think, like, like two of nine or so. And, and cut, like one of those was a banked in three. So oh, it's well. Lucky shot. Like, right. Yeah. And like, I, I think he'll play better. I think there, there's no doubt he's going to have to make more threes going forward. That's the, that's the adjustments. And then if you make more threes, then the hope is that you can use that as a weapon and then get all the way to the rim as a result. But Denver's done a great job of cutting off the rim from everybody. They have not allowed as many rim uh, attempts as they have in previous seasons, as they have in previous postseasons, And there's a lot to like about the, the pressure that Denver's put on them. They are funneling Devin Booker and Kevin Durant into spots on the floor that they're okay living with, and it's on Booker and Durant to really rise above that. But whether they can or not without Chris Paul, if, if he doesn't play, that remains to be seen. He is Ryan Blackburn, of course, the lead Nuggets analyst here at Mile High Sports and the host of the Pickaxe and Roll podcast. And you can check it out on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts, by the way. And uh, terrific stuff, especially if you're a night owl like me. You've watched the game and you still want to get some more. Uh, that's where Ryan's at it, at his best. So make sure you give him a, a look there. Ryan, appreciate it. Uh, this is going to be a fascinating couple days that we have to wait. I mean, I'm sure if you were the Nuggets, you'd like to play again tonight and keep it going. But we'll find out what happens over the course of the week and how Phoenix adjusts. Appreciate the time. Thanks, you guys. Really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Uh, Ryan's right. Step one for Phoenix is to figure out what's going on with Chris Paul. But I'm inclined to, I, I think all three of us are on the same page. 
given his age, given the, the how that injury looked, given the fact that Monty Williams said he couldn't push off on it, and the exact <laughs> quote was, at all. At all. I think no Friday way. may be a little no aggressive. Way. No way. No way he plays Friday. And, they, and they're not going to risk it. They're down 2-0. Uh, they're probably going to have to win at least one game without him and, and, and figure out on the basis of uh, what I'm sure they will conclude by the end of business hours today uh, as to whether he can play or not. But but I think then they have to develop an idea of what they're going to do to replace him. And, uh, yes, the the best alternative is just giving over responsibility to Booker, but Booker's already struggling with the burden that's placed and, and now, upon him. And now he doesn't and have a point guard who could get him in a position right, to his best Right, shot. now he's got to create every shot for himself that he takes. Here were the assist totals on average. And make Durant better than he's been, right. which hasn't been very good even with Chris Paul in games Chris one. Chris Paul, 8.9 assists per game in the regular season. Devin Booker, second of 5.5. Third, Cameron Payne at 4.5, but minus 16 and 17 minutes in last yeah. game. And then the next yeah. the, the next guy? You can't play him. Michael Bridges. He's not well, there. He's he was traded there. away. The yeah. next guy? Saban Lee. Traded away. Yeah. I mean, that's that's where you're at. Yeah. So, I mean, besides, if you're not going to play Cameron Payne, the guys on your team, in order of assists, behind Chris Paul, Devin Booker, and then Kevin Durant. And if they're either, either of those guys are carrying the load, they can't pass themselves open, that plays directly into the Nuggets' hands. Yeah. I, I think so. Now, will home court lift some of those players uh, who have been nothing other than liabilities, pure liabilities for Phoenix in the first two games here in Denver? Will the home court lift them? Yeah, I, I think it will a little bit, but that emotion can only take you so far. And uh, though they weren't nearly as good a road team as they were last year, uh, this year, the Nuggets have, I think, done pretty good work on the road. They almost won two in Minneapolis at the Target Center against the Timberwolves. And I, I, I at this point, with, with Paul hurting and, and maybe even a, a firm probability to miss both games. I think better than a 50-50 chance he misses both. I think the Nuggets would take one win in Phoenix, oh, come back here with a 3-1 lead. You bet they would. And, you know, we, we've seen, you know, 3-1 leads aren't necessarily insurmountable. This guy's the Boston Bruins. Uh, you know, yeah, we, that said you'd still rather be up 3-1. But down you'd, you'd, <laughs> you'd probably rather be up 3-1 uh, most of the time. And, there are only so many options because they, they made their deal in, in bringing in Durant and basically trading their bench away. That was the along, along with Bridges, who is a really, perfectly really good, good NBA starting forward. The Nuggets will pick this series back up in Phoenix on Friday. Game four will be Sunday, and uh, then we'll see beyond that. Uh, I don't think the Nuggets are thinking about a sweep, and they shouldn't. Just worry about game three. Take it. From there. And take advantage of the three days off. Take advantage of it. Rest it. Yeah. Rest. Rest. Because this team is actually less taxed than those Phoenix Stars are already. So take advantage of it. Yeah. No doubt. Enjoy your pool time, Nikola Jokic. Rest and relax, big fella. You have a 2-0 lead. 
the Denver Broncos completed their draft, of course, last weekend. No real significant changes are going to be in the offing given the guys that they've drafted. But what do these moves say about where Sean Payton thinks the Broncos need to get better? We'll talk about it next on Mile High Sports. Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Sandy, the Denver Broncos, after their draft last week, had not a lot of picks being added. In fact, a couple trades, even though they didn't have very many picks, trade up to go get uh, Marvin Mims Jr., the wide receiver out of uh, Oklahoma, and then also make a deal to pick up defensive back, and I say defensive back, Riley Moss out of Iowa, because depending on who you talk to at the NFL level, a lot of people talking about him like he's a safety. Projects a safety or projects a corner. And they they drafted two safeties. Or a hybrid, big corner, you know, whatever you want to put it. And, of course, Jail Skinner in that sixth out of Boise State, now it's Forsyth out of Oregon, the center in the seventh. But let's let's go with those early ones, because as we've discussed before, I think you and I agreed immediately with the Marvin Mims pick. I I didn't like the pick. I still don't like the pick. I just think that's the most dependent position in sports in the Broncos. To me, that's wide receivers are the spinning rims of football. Uh, they, they look great. They're the last thing you need to put on your car. I think you need when you have, especially when you're, you know, you're, you're blowing a piston left and right when you try to turn the ignition like the number Broncos are. But that's the way they went. And they decided in a, in a pass-heavy league that they wanted to go get a playmaking wide receiver, but I, it also in, un, almost certainly spells the end of K.J. Hamler's tenure. Well, it, there's that, but I think even more important than that, they needed a punt returner. They they haven't had one. Is uh, a punt returner valuable enough to draft in the second round? I mean, well, you really need it that I, much? I think if you know he's your guy and he's done it a lot in college and at a place like Oklahoma, uh, nothing against small schools at all. And Actually, I thought Deion Sanders had a legitimate complaint, uh, although there's some irony in it being Deion Sanders who made the point that only one HBCU kid was drafted, the entire draft. And for the first time in eons, I I think maybe even the first time since the common draft was introduced in 1967, there were no HBCU players drafted in the first round. used to go all the time. Pittsburgh was big on them in the 70s. Uh, Lombardi's Packers in the 60s were big on them, although the common draft didn't start till 67. Uh, AFL teams like Kansas City Chiefs were huge on uh, HBCU players. Hank Stram was ahead of his time in that respect. Al Davis was ahead of his time in that respect. The Raiders did a lot of that. So uh, it, 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 it stunned me when that point was made on the telecast during the first round. It was the first time going back to the first year of the common draft that no HBCU player has been drafted but you know look at the bronco picks oklahoma arkansas iowa boise state oregon big conferences big programs <laughs> right exactly right so competition uh, that's closer no, to the but, nfl level but i i think they feel that either there hasn't been an emphasis on special teams commensurate with the value of special teams in recent years or that they've made some really silly decisions on at least two occasions in handing the job to rookies who Mm -hmm. had not proven themselves and never had to earn the job. Now, 
we've seen one go on to a decent career with Buffalo. That would be Isaiah McKenzie. And the other one, unfortunately, although he impressed us and we liked him a lot, didn't do anything. Well, don't. Last year. And Montreal Washington. Don't forget Montreal Washington. Only three punt return touchdowns all last year. Uh, one of them was also from a player who the Broncos tried and moved on from, Khalif Raymond, who did that with the Lions. Yeah. But, again, that's where I look at it. Only only three punt return touchdowns all last year. Only. But but you've got to do better than they've done. Yeah, only four returns over 47 in yards. In the return all, game. all year. In yeah, the, in the NFL. And, and, again, the, the leader in yards per punt return for someone who got more than 20 punts, at least, 20 returns. And that's it, 20 yeah. returns. Would have been Marcus Jones for the Patriots, 29 punt returns, an average of 12.5 per. Yeah, but that's good. And, and it is, but is that changing the, the game? Well, I, I don't know. It's changing the only, field position. Only 29 this is a returns team, all year long? This is a team that, that, you know, has had no field position in recent years. And a large part of that well, is a special mean, team. You know, maybe you're right. I just look at, I look at if, at the moment, and let's assume, let's assume that immediately Marvin Mims Jr. becomes the number four wide out, assuming health with, with Sutton and but, Patrick but, but, and Judy. But say they drafted is, Hamler 46th overall. Yeah, that was a bad pick. It, it was. And so doing it again so doesn't necessarily time, make it a good But they aren't doing it again. They're, they're, they're getting this guy overall. at 63 or 63. 64. 63. Not that 63 because there were 31 picks right. in the first round. And there were 32 in the second. He was the last pick in the second round. And I, I think they feel he's better than K.J. Hamler. Uh, I would agree with that. It, it, again, nothing personal, but from what we've seen, or and maybe even what we haven't seen. And fair and unfair. K.J. Hamler. Hamler's injury situation I mean, is significant. Whether it's physical or psychological, we, we have not really seen him and when we have he's been thoroughly unimpressive it, it seems to be a very tough target to find and uh, you know Mims isn't an, a three down wide receiver but you're, it wasn't a great wide receiver class and the good ones were basically gone at the end of the first round the guys are going to start make an right. impact they're gone by the end of the first round if you're looking for Something and we and we know from Sean Payton's record, he's out of the Bill Parcells school, and I think ha- has the same view of wide receivers a- as you do. But KJ Hamler is making far more money than he should be making, and Marvin Mims won't be making much of anything. And I think they think Mims is a better player. And I don't know, nobody else tried him as a punt returner, and I don't think Sean Payton sees him as a punt returner either. And he does see Marvin Mims that way. But uh, the big complaint that Sean Payton seemed to have about the wide receivers last year was that the Broncos paid them $43 million, and only two teams in the league paid more for wide receivers last year than the Denver Broncos did. It's absurd to think that the Broncos had one of the three, four, five, heck, one of the top 20 receiving groups in the NFL because they didn't. And yes, Russell Wilson's failure was a part of that. Sure, it was, but Huge it, it went both ways. The wide receivers didn't help Wilson. Wilson didn't help the wide receivers. Right, and they're paying a guy, and they're stuck paying him because he had no trade value whatsoever. They're paying Cortland Sutton, also a second round pick, mm-hmm. who seemed to be a steal for a second rounder in 2019, but has since 
seemed like more of a third or fourth round guy, uh, uh, type of receiver that grows on trees, catches 60 passes for 800 yards and maybe a touchdown or two every year. You can find those guys in the fourth and fifth rounds of even bad wide receiver drafts. And I'm not sure there is such a thing as a truly bad wide receiver draft anymore. If you develop it, them yeah. the right way. It appears to be in many ways like the most stockpiled position uh, in college year after year. We but I, the, but the, I agree with you. Stuff. It's a dependent position. And I, I don't think he wants to pay. They're stuck paying Sutton because of a deal well, and that's, that the uh, the current general manager, correct. who a year from now may not be the general manager anymore, it, because of a deal he negotiated, which was uh, pretty much universally uh, celebrated at I the time. So. Yep. You and I were not exactly doing handstands over it. No, however. no. I, it felt a little early, and it felt as if it were a little... Uh, the, the concern was that it, it 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 seemed to ignore significant injury concerns. Now, uh, Tim Patrick did not have those at the time, and that's why I think we talked about that. But uh, Cortland Sutton did, and Tim Patrick doesn't make what Cortland Sutton makes. Cortland but, Sutton was paid as if he would but this be year, Cortland a Sutton's cap hit, cut number one wide receiver. His cap hit this year, Sandy, is eighteen point. That's absurd. Million. It's absurd. Eighteen point two. And when, and when you're the most overpaid about, uh, wide receiver in the NFL at this particular time, but it, by a country mile. And and I think, quite frankly, and I, I, I had felt that when they were supposedly shopping Cortland Sutton and Jerry Judy, and I believe they were shopping both of them. Yeah, but, I do too. But the reality is, I think they knew what they had in Judy, and they were taking it. They, if someone wanted to offer a first, they'd take it. Yes. But I think... The idea that they wanted the equivalent for Cortland Sutton wasn't even close. I think they were willing to take a third or better if they had gotten the salary cap relief, but they weren't going to get that. Darren Waller got a fourth. Darren Waller, who the, when, <laughs> when healthy is one the of the top went five out tight ends, and got and the Notre Dame tight end, right? Who is younger, probably more durable, and will eventually be just as good, if not better, than Darren Waller. Quite possibly so good for the Raiders. I actually thought. It, it, and again, I, I thought the Broncos did fine. The problem is Kansas City didn't need to do very much. Uh, the Chargers didn't need to do a lot. I mean, their talent is fine. There, there's something out there that's amiss, but it doesn't have anything to do with the kind of talent they have. And I thought the Raiders had a very good draft and a ton of picks. Let me let me. Give I can't you, miss on all of them. And I'm not look. I, I don't get me wrong. I don't blame Cortland Sutton. Somebody offers well, me. The, no, somebody offers me the contract. Not. I'm asking where the pen is. Uh, of course not. I'm not blaming him. But but that's but. Well, let me, let me run off. Let me run off some players at the position that make less than right. Cortland Sutton will make this year. Right. Okay. Debo Samuel, pretty good. AJ Brown, pretty good. Trying to get guys that aren't on rookie deals for you, right? To be to be fair about it. Keenan Allen. Tyreek Hill. Marquise Brown, Mike Williams, DK Metcalf, no, he's been hurt. Michael Thomas, Devontae Adams, Stephon Diggs, Tyler Lockett. All of those guys this year will make less money than Cortland Sutton. You know who right. makes more than Cortland Sutton? Let me give you the list. It won't take you very long. DeAndre Hopkins, Cooper Cup, Amari Cooper, Mike Evans, DJ Moore. That's it. That's it. 
Corlin Sutton is the sixth highest paid receiver in the NFL this year. For how many 1,000-yard seasons? <laughs> one. It would be one. Prior to his knee injury and hasn't come close since. Jerry Judy came close to 1,000 yards last year, right? Yeah. By virtue of what he did in the last six games. Very strong finishing kick. How short was he? 36 yards? I think that's right. Yeah. It it wasn't wasn't much. Berlin Sutton has averaged the last three years. If Jerry Judy could finish, I think the equivalent was. I mean, he's averaged 60 catches a year. (laughs) Not 70, not 80. Jerry Judy, 972 yards. Cortland Sutton, 829, 64 catches. And uh, the difference, of course, is the knocks that he had on Jerry Judy before, lack of touchdowns. Judy had six receiving touchdowns by far. How many did Sutton have? Two. Yeah. And that was the second best on the team, tied with Greg Dulcich, a rookie, and Eric Tomlinson, a depth tight end. Who missed a lot of the season with injury. Right. And Tomlinson hardly played. And Judy, by the way, uh, except for K.J. Himmler, only had seven catches on the year, also led the team in averages per catch, both. Judy did. Judy did. For well, sure. 14.5. Which is fine. But Which is fine. 14, and I, I 14 think Judy catches. Judy to 15 or yeah, 16. And 14 catches of over right. 20 yards right. this season. Right. 41 of those 67 goes first yeah. down. Judy had a good year. The Broncos would have considered moving him if they got a first. Yeah. In Sutton's case, they know that, and you wonder why they weren't able to get anything. It's because Cortland Sutton's the sixth highest paid receiver in the league. Yeah. Right. Who's going to pay him that kind of money? That, that number makes him essentially toxic. You you can't make um, a trade. It makes him untradeable. That's makes him, for sure. Well, it makes him untradeable. But it makes him he's, he's not a bad guy. Uh, no, he he's actually he's in the he's, locker room. No. He's, he's in some ways a leader, but while he doesn't, you know, complain about not getting the ball, no, he's, he's he not doesn't. really a diva. He's just not productive enough to be worth anything close to that. Unless he has a blowout year. This is going to be it for Cortland Sutton, and I'll tell you why. This year, of course, you can't move him. Twenty-four point twenty-five point four million of dead cap, but next year that drops to seven point six right. on a seventeen point three million dollar cap hit. So now all of a sudden, you're saving money, right? And right now you don't save money. Next year you save about ten million if you move away from Cortland Sutton. Cortland yep. Sutton's going to have to be a Pro Bowler, or this is going to be his last year in a Denver Broncos uniform. It's just that simple, and that is one of the reasons that Marvin Mims. Well, Marvin Mims, you're exactly right. Mar- Marvin Mims got picked 21 picks after Cortland Sutton got picked. And Cortland Sutton's never been a punt returner, never done anything on special teams. I'm not knocking that. No. I'm like just saying that six, four, every right. pick the Broncos made has, at the very least, special teams. They are all earmarked for special one. teams immediately. They're all, they're all special teams. No question. Day one. And the sleeper, of course, you take a look at it, is Drew Sanders, who... I understand the Broncos made sure to bring back both Josie Jewell and Alex Singleton. Drew Sanders may not be as far from getting starting player snaps as anyone thinks, especially in a very dangerous AFC West, which covering tight ends is absolutely imperative. Haven't talked about the he Colorado Rockies. can't do Rockies. worse than no, it's, all the folks they've tried. I can't. The Colorado Rockies aren't discussed very heavily in these parts because they're not deserving of it, but... Um, the latest news for the Rockies most certainly is. Uh, we'll talk about it next on Miley Sports. I remind myself that times could be much worse. My wife won't ask me questions. There's not so much. Boom, boom, boom. My heart beats. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Boom, boom, boom. Heart speed goes zoom, 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 zoom. Sandy Cuff and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. 
The Colorado Rockies this season are off to a 9-20 and 20 start. The only team in the National League that does not have double-digit wins. Dead last in the National League. By the way, the in winning percentage. losing, I have said, 100 games is losing 20 in April. Mission accomplished. Yes, uh, they have done that exactly. And that 310 winning percentage that they have, where you extend that out to a season, that would be a grand total of 50 wins. You can do the math. That means yes. 112 They, they, they are losses. on pace to lose somewhere around 112, 113, 114 games. Uh, they won't, of course. But Are you sure? It, but, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but I think, finally, something I've predicted uh, for some time, and I, I predicted it in kind of a hopeful manner, thinking that that's about the only way that it, – it, I'm, I'm not saying it would force the Moffords to sell, but At least it would get their attention. Get their attention. Would anyway, vote. it would be embarrassing well, to lose 100 games. But having having said all that, this is the worst start of the Colorado Rockies since 2005. That would be 18 years. Right. And the news gets worse because after... Herman Marquez uh, had that start on April 10th in which he had sort of a tightness in the forum. He came back right. on April 26th, tried it, and immediately went down again. Well, Marquez, who has a team option next year for $16 million, is out for the year. He will need Tommy John surgery. and it, He's never had it before, so he was probably due for it. He's 28 years old, and the funny thing is that he's actually arguably young enough to bounce back, and given the, oh, sure. given the manner in which he throws, perhaps actually have a pretty nice second act. The yeah. question now is it's hard to believe that the Rockies would pick up a team option for $16 million for a guy who's coming back off Tommy John's surgery. And so Herman Marquez has more than likely pitched his last game for the Rockies. Uh, probably. And uh, uh, who was the pitcher they released a few days ago? Um, who, who they signed to a one-year deal, $3.5 million. Urena? Oh, yes. Yeah, so it was Urena, who, had, who yeah. had, had a couple moments designated for assignment only a few days prior. Right. 0-4, Antonio Senzatella is supposed to come back this week now from as rehab starts with Albuquerque and AAA. But, I mean, you're talking about uh, Connor Seabold is going to start this <laughs> week. If you have no idea who that is, don't feel bad. Uh, it's quite all right. He could be in the living room with you, and you'd be like, who's that in our living room? And it wasn't, yeah, you, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't even well, know. Here, and, and you're talking about pitching. But I've always thought the most overrated part of the Rockies' presentation has been their hitting. Uh, a gentleman we've had on our shows many times, Bob Nightingale of USA Today, did basically a one-month review in USA Today yesterday, first month of Major League Baseball season. The Rockies have hit the third fewest home runs month of April, 21 with the third lowest slugging percentage in the National League, but at least they're slow, stealing just five bases, Second fewest, find only the Minnesota Twins, in a year where everybody's stealing bases, even though, in spite of the shift ban, right, batting average remains basically the same as it has been the last two years, with the average number of runs decreasing from two years ago from nine point one to nine runs a game. But there's still more. But there's more activity. There's more. I action. agree. I agree. I'm not. I'm not worried I, I'm about not suggesting. I, yeah. I, I just. Think for people who said, "Well, oh, it's going to ruin the game." And, yeah. Ban the shift, ruin the game, or ban the shift. Uh, if you ban the shift, batting averages will skyrocket. No, 
because hitters are still, uh, Ted Williams is say pitchers are the dumbest, most stubborn people on the face of the earth. Uh, Ted Williams might say today, if he were alive today, that hitters, hitters have are. become the dumbest, <laughs> most stubborn people on the face of the earth. Uh, the Rockies have got since that I've gotten I think up to six deals, half of which, by the way, are from Brenton Doyle, who was just called up uh, a rookie in the last week. Yeah, I, I don't know what the cutoff. That's point still, yeah, was. this is right. essentially. But I mean, uh, a post. But they, but they column, have they but, have six now, and right. three of them are okay. Doyle. I mean, this team doesn't run. And here, the other part, by the way, in case you were curious. Everybody's running except the Rockies. Where all the hope was. Uh, Alirius Montero well. is now back in AAA because he wasn't able to field his position particularly well. Uh, that's a problem. Uh, in case you were curious, most of, the, most of the time, by the way, the Rockies on their starting lineup, most times, seven of those players, that Bud Black's putting on that list are 30 or older. Seven. This is this Again, is Again, the great myth about you, the you Rockies. You are old and you're bad. The worst thing to be in sports is old and and bad. 12th oldest pitching staff in the league, 4th right. oldest on offense. Right. Oldest. Okay. The great myth about the Rockies for 30 plus years, 31 now, right? Mm-hmm. Has been well Take a look at our farm system. We're a draft and develop team. We don't need all those free agents. Well, you're blocking a lot of your young right. players then with d- all d- these guys. Uh, well, the fact of the matter is they're old because their farm system is isn't any good. What they think and the guy most responsible for the uh, building, the drafting is of, now the the farm, the system, uh, of the farm system is now the general manager of the team, Bill Schmidt. The, he's the general manager of the team. And uh, I, I like what I know of Bud Black, and I think he's the best manager they've ever had. They did under Bud Black go to the playoffs two years in a row in 17 and 18. But I think at this point, Bud Black has made his bargain that he will not knock management. He'll sit there and absorb all these losses because they're paying him well, and they will continue to employ him for as long as he wants to be employed and make good money doing it and buy that ranch he wants to buy and out in the Colorado hinterlands. And, 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 and stay and, and, in Colorado and enjoy the summer. There are worse things. And, yeah. There are worse things in life than that. Uh, but I can't even judge him as a manager because I I think he's he's made that bargain. Yes. And it's, it's irrelevant. Performance no longer matters. Even to the extent that they've lost uh, what's it been. 90 or more games now, nine times mm-hmm. in 31 years, it, it's still a team that's never lost 100. Yeah, it's, and it's coming this year. I think it's, it's, it's going to happen. It's coming. They're minus 54 on run differential, the worst in the National League. They've hit into the most double plays in the National League. I, I could keep going on and on, but here's the part that's important. Let's look at May. Now, in May, they, pay, they play nine series right okay only three games all month three against the reds who by the way are 12 and 16 better than the rockies anyway oh yeah three games this month will be played at course field against a team with a losing record that's it that's it all month every every Look game out at home below every game at home except three against the reds or as michael ray richardson once said 
as a member of the early 80s New York Knickerbockers, the ship, she be sinking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I don't know where the bottom is, but by the end of May, uh, 310 might be a pretty good winning percentage. It is going to be ugly. And, and very bad news to Herman Marquez, one of, uh, and quite frankly, given the uh, realistic nature of the Rockies as a franchise history, one of the most accomplished pitchers the Rockies have ever had. And certainly, if not the most purely gifted starter the Rockies have ever had, extraordinarily close to it, maybe Hubaldo Jimenez, but you're talking about the list kind of beginning and ending there. So a, a tremendous shame for Amon Marquez. The hope is that maybe coming back from that, uh, whatever new team he lands with, that maybe the future will be brighter. But um, a, a real shame to see one of the uh, best reasons to watch the Rockies, quite frankly, over the course of the majority of his career, much of last year notwithstanding, for Amon Marquez to absorb that injury. That's too bad. And uh, you wish him best of luck oh, going of forward. Uh, of course. And again, this is like uh, blaming the CU players for going 1-11 last year. I mean, they didn't recruit themselves. Right. Uh, it, they didn't coach themselves. And, you know, blaming the Rockies players for the sins of management slash ownership is – Equally senseless. So, too bad there, but as you pointed out, what the ship should be sinking, look out below. There is no bottom. I have no idea, but that's what Colorado (laughs) Rockies season is going to look like. Fortunately, of course, we'll be focusing on the Denver Nuggets, who are doing everything right right now. Every button is The Nuggets are the most exciting story in the city, and now they have no competition. The draft is over. uh, The avalanche season is over, and the Rockies season is ends even before Mother's Day in 2023. Get in, losers. We're watching basketball. That's all we're doing now. That's the only thing that matters in town. Thanks for Ryan Blackbird for joining us. Thanks for Danny Bailey and Andrew Demmer in the booth making everything look and sound so good. Thanks to you for listening uh My Life Sports and over at the website and at the app. Uh, go ahead and check that out and tell me like My Life Sports free app no matter where you get your apps and you can listen to it on demand and crystal clear. We'll be back tomorrow, but we're going to hand things off. So for Sandy Clough, I'm Sean Drotar. Keep it tuned right here at My Life Sports. And love is the prize, so wake me up.